Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. Really 
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from... This is our year-end show, where we revisit some of our best interviews for the past 12 months. Joining me now, one of our regulars on the show, a veteran airline pilot. And, of course, you can always find him at askthepilot.com. Lots of stuff to talk about this week. Our good pal, Patrick Smith. Hello, Captain. Hey, Peter. Thanks for having me back. Yes, and if you heard this voice on, on a radio, you might want to declare an emergency. <laughs> But we'll, we'll, but we'll get to that later. Speaking of declaring an emergency, let's get serious for a minute. In the aftermath of the Southwest Airlines incident, so many things need to be discussed and, of course, put in proper context. Uh, when that incident happened, uh, you have, you know, possible decompression. In this case, you did. You had loss of thrust. You lose a you had injuries, which one of them resulted in a fatality. And the, the captain of that plane only really had one immediate choice. Uh, get that plane first down under 10,000 feet and then find the longest runway. That's all true, Peter. Um, you know, they had their hands full, and I say they because there were two hardworking pilots in that cockpit, not just one. Uh, they were dealing with an uncontained engine failure a rapid cabin depressurization, and also serious injuries and worse to to passengers. That's uh, no pilot's idea of a fun day. Uh, they had their hands full. Just the same, though, um, you know, I almost hate to say this, but there really wasn't all that much that was seat of the pants about it. You know, the media loves a hero, and, and they've played up the, uh, the, the, the captain here who obviously did a good job along with everybody else who was there, the pilots and flight attendants. But, uh, you know, this wasn't about heroics. It was it was the crew doing what it was expected and trained to do. And even with these multiple uh, compound emergencies, what to do and how to do it was, you know, really pretty straightforward. Uh, there's no other way to say it. Oh, but at the same time, Let's give it a sense of place and perspective. You're sitting in the left seat. You lose an engine that essentially disintegrates. You can't see that engine from where you're sitting. All you look at is your instrumentation and the avionics. You know you don't have thrust. You know you might have a fire. You have other master warnings coming on in your cockpit in terms of decompression. All sorts of things going on simultaneously. That's true, and uh, there would have been a need to prioritize uh, and put the things in the proper order and, and, and follow the procedures for each one. Uh, you know, for, for passengers, I think the, the decompression was, was the scariest part. You know, you've seen the pictures of the people with the masks clamped on, and the crew would have to initiate an emergency descent, as you said, down to uh, 10,000 feet or lower. You know, very dramatic, very noisy, uh, very shocking, startling for the passengers. I can't blame anybody on the airplane for being afraid, but what they had to do, what the pilots had to do, was something that was well within their their capabilities and what they were trained to do, and also well within the airplane's capabilities. The, the plane was never really in any danger of crashing. You know, it's interesting because I'll tell you, it's something that happened with me 
and it goes back to 1977, I was on a Frontier Convair 580 going from Salt Lake City to Montana. And as I got on the plane, you know, you mentioned the noise on the plane. Well, we had a situation where the window next to me, literally, that I was sitting next to, I saw the crack start. (laughs) And I got out of that chair so fast. And the flight attendant thought I was a crazy person when I ran to the back of the plane and there was a flight attendant jump seat literally at the tail. And I basically stole her seat. And right when I got there, the window blew. And, and the, the noise. The, and the Convair 580, Peter, had huge windows, which <laughs> in a, situ- a situation yeah. like that uh, isn't, isn't a good thing. You could almost walk through one of those windows. No. And that noise. And by the way, I remember this so vividly. It was, I take this back, it was December 26th. 1976 and the noise was so deafening and it was a full flight because it was the day after Christmas it was so deafening it was unbelievable and and the pilot knew we had to get the plane down but here's the part where the movies go out the window Not nobody screamed nobody was panicking in fact nobody did anything they were all frozen in time in their own thoughts People, the guy in front of me was still doing the crossword, and <laughs> and uh, seriously, and and then to add insult to injury, or more injury to injury, the minute we got below ten thousand feet, the left engine seized, and he had to feather it. So now we're on one engine, in twenty knot crosswinds, going into Montana, with the noisiest plane inside, and people all with no exception, making believe that it was just another flight. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing I've ever been in. And, of course, we landed, and everything was okay, but how bizarre. And I would venture that, in this case, people don't have enough time to panic in the traditionally stereotypical way. And, you know, that's funny. Uh, single engine, a blown window, a safe landing, not at all unlike what happened to Southwest. And, you know, Peter, I think it's important that we put this incident in the greater air safety context. You know, there hadn't been a fatality aboard a U.S. major carrier since 2005, and there still hasn't been a large-scale crash involving a U.S. major since 2001, which is absolutely astonishing. So, Although I throw in 2009 with Colgan Air. Still, well, you can put you can put Colgan and and Com Air. There were there were several uh, regional airliner accidents, but looking at the majors, uh, that's that's still extraordinarily impressive. And we don't see multiple deadly crashes year after year after year like we used to. And you know, for better or worse, these incidents uh, when they happen, like the Southwest uh, incident, uh, you know, it's tragic that somebody was killed. But in the bigger scheme of things, it was a relatively minor mishap, and and that's that's fortunate. And not only was this the first fatality in so many years, it was the first fatality in the history of Southwest Airlines on one of their planes. On one of their planes, but that last uh, fatality involved in Chicago, a major I know, was in 2005 that the Southwest airplane struck a car and killed a young boy inside in the Chicago. car. So, yeah. Um, Again, though, uh, you know, it's, it, that's a tragedy, but it's better than uh, 180 people being killed or, or 380 
and the kinds of crashes that we used to see all the time. My next guest, and I should tell you, to give you a sense of place, this particular cruise is a celebration cruise of 10 years of expedition ships, and we're celebrating a lot of people on this ship, including some of their veteran passengers who spent hundreds of days on their ships doing crazy stuff, ranging from Bangladesh to Antarctica. But we're also celebrating my next guest, who is a record holder for doing something that every time I read what she's done, I go, how did that happen? She is, uh, well, she calls herself a polar explorer, but she's much more than that. Let me tell you this. She is the first woman to ski alone across Antarctica. You want to hear that again? Unreal. This is a journey of about 1,400, 1,500 miles that took 59 days to complete. And, of course, she's a Guinness World Book record holder. But bottom line is her name is Felicity Aston. Felicity, first of all, I'm going to ask the first question, followed by the obvious second question. The first question is why, and the second question we'll get to, which is how. <laughs> yeah, the why. Well, I mean, it's not like I woke up one day and said, right, I want to ski across Antarctica. And um, this wasn't like a bet. <laughs> no, no. And I was totally sober when I decided to do it. It was... A gradual progression. I've been traveling, I've been lucky enough to travel in Antarctica for nearly 20 years now. Um, and each time I took on an expedition, it was more demanding, more challenging in one way or another. But when you first went there, under what auspices? Uh, so I first went there as a brand new graduate straight out of university. My very first proper job was with the British Antarctic Survey. So, so you were down there at the station? I traveled down to Rothera Research Station as a meteorologist. So basically, before you got to ski alone across Antarctica, you basically were living alone. I mean, I mean, that, well, that is not, not, alone. not alone, but but in a relatively remote location. Probably yeah. one of the most remote locations you could imagine. Well, I mean, there were times on that station. I mean, you're cut off from the world during Especially that seven-month winter yes. uh, with a small group of 20 or so other people. So there were many times when I wished I was alone because you are in I mean, a very small community. The first time I think most Americans realized what that existence was like was when the female doctor needed to be evacuated because of a medical problem at the worst time. That was at the South Pole, it was yes. was at the South Pole, yes. and they organized this amazing rescue mission with lighting the runway with oil cans. And I mean, it was out of a movie, and they did it. But normally, you don't get air service down there at that time of the year. No. You get well, no service down there at that uh, time of the exactly. year. Exactly. Even today, there is that winter period where those stations are physically cut off. Now, they're much more connected by satellite and things like that. But, um, but physically, you're cut off. Physically, you're still cut off. The, the ships can't get down there, and the aircraft really don't want to go. So on your first position down there how long were you there I was there well my first contract was 39 months excuse so. me <laughs> Who did you so, piss off? Exactly. So I turned up there in uh, December of 2000, and I didn't leave Antarctica again until April of 2003. And that was standard at the time. That was the standard contract. And I was, I'm going to ask an obvious... And what lessons did you learn? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I don't think I realized at the time how useful that experience was or would turn out to be for putting together my own teams in the future. And I've put together expedition teams in the years since. Uh, you know, so often when things have happened, and I've thought, I recognize this. I recognize 
recognise what's going on because I saw it in those years down in Antarctica in a small community, how people break apart and come together and, you know, just how odd human beings can be. <laughs> well, you, you are certainly a either a victim or a beneficiary of a harsh environment. Yeah, I mean, that was the other thing was that, you know, there were days where, you know, I didn't just get to visit Antarctica. I got to live there. And uh, so I saw it on days when I would rather have been anywhere else in the world, quite frankly, and days when there was nowhere else in the world I would rather have been. How many books did you read during that time? <laughs> Oh, you know, I didn't count them, but uh, it uh, there was lots of challenges, but I think, you know, the privilege definitely outweighed those. I mean, I would think that Antarctica over that period of time would be the, the capital location for self-entertainment. I mean, because <laughs> you don't have many choices. Uh, it's an odd, you know, you have to be very good at being in your own company, but you also have to be very good at living closely with other people because not only are you working with them, you're seeing them breakfast, lunch and dinner. You're socialising with them so in the bar. So you better be friendly. So even if it's someone you really can't stand, you, you have to find you a way. Adjust. <laughs> you if there's anything that you know, my my father once told me, it's not about winning or losing or being right or wrong. It's about adjusting. Nowhere do you have to do you have to adjust more in that kind of environment than there. Uh, exactly, and not only that, but you have to do a successful job as well. So you first went down there as a legitimate member of the British station in, Antar in Antarctica. You just woke up one day and said, get me a pair of skis, I'm doing this? <laughs> well, I mean, when I finally left Antarctica in April of 2003, you would have think that I wanted to go somewhere nice and hot and sunny maybe for, for a while. But in fact, my brain was just full of how am I going to get back into the polar environment? I want to see more. I want to see what's up north. How does it compare to what's down south? And because when we, we talk about a polar explorer, we're not just limited to, to Antarctica. No, I mean, I've been very fortunate to um, see lots of different parts of the Arctic, ranging from the Canadian Arctic right the way across Siberia. I've done quite a lot of traveling in Siberia. And, you know, the Arctic is an incredibly diverse place. Yeah. Um, but each expedition that I put together, you know, my heart and my mind would be trailing back to Antarctica. How was I going to get back there? And so eventually I started putting together my own expeditions to Antarctica. And then that led to the yeah, I mean, you know, I remember I was leading an international team of women uh, to the South Pole in 2009. I remember when it was my turn to lead the team. So we took it in terms to sort of navigate at the front of the line, skiing in single file. And when it was my turn, I'd be navigating and trying to imagine that there was no one behind me and trying to <laughs> picture what it would feel like to be in that incredibly empty and monotonous, albeit wonderful So basically what you're saying is, is that 39 months in one station and for the British wasn't enough for you for being alone you really wanted to be truly alone yeah I was curious you know what would it feel like what would it feel like to not have the support of those people around me how would I react to that and there was only one way to find out okay so how did you prepare for this uh, well, I went to see a sports psychologist, and he yeah, I would have taught seen a, me. I would, yeah. have seen a, I would have seen a sports psychologist. <laughs> well, one of the things I was really worried about was that I'd seen how, you know, when people get affected by things like hypothermia, um, you, they're always the last people to realize something is wrong. It's the people around them that Who say, oh, you're being a bit bizarre, you're but being be a nobody bit unusual. Around you. um, but, you know, so how would I know on my own whether I was making the right decisions or not? And, uh, how, many and people tried, said, how many people tried to talk you out of this? Well, I mean, his answer almost talked me out 
out of it because he said, well, the thing is, Felicity, if uh, you experience something and on some level you know it's not real, then you don't have a clinical problem. <laughs> but if, uh, if you can't tell between what's real and what's not real anymore, that's when you're yeah. and really then, of course, in trouble. You're really in trouble for two reasons. One, you figured it out, you're in trouble. The second, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in actual fact, what happened was that, you know, when that plane first left me, I just got hit with this sudden realization and all of those tools and techniques, all of that preparation just suddenly seemed totally inadequate. Okay, you're standing there by yourself with your skis, your pack, your supplies, and the plane leaves. You know at that moment, it's not coming back. Mm. And it, it was just a shock. I, I went into shock. It, just that sudden weight of isolation, of knowing just how far away the nearest help and was. And the three words you, you used in the form of a question were, I did what? <laughs> But the bottom line is, is that in that situation, what are you going to do? You know, that, that plane, it would take at least a week of logistics in order to get that plane back to where it's just dropped you off. So they're not coming so, back. So was hurry. there a plan saying, OK, when I get to where I'm going, I'll call you? Yeah, I was obliged to make a call once a day uh, using a satellite phone. And How did the, you charge the, the satellite phone? Was it solar? Uh, solar panel, solar. yeah. Uh, the benefits of 24-hour daylight in the summer in Antarctica. But the plan was that if they didn't hear from me in any 24-hour period, they would come back to my last known position, um, which that sounds pretty secure as a safety net, right? But yeah. actually, when you start to think about it, you know, I set off in the morning skiing. I'm four hours ski away from my last known position if I fall into a crevasse or something not going to see I've you. got to wait 24 hours crushed in this little crevasse well, until they come of, back to look for me speaking of little or slightly larger crevasses how many did you dodge? Well, you don't know. This is a scary thing about it is that you can't see them from the surface. You know you're crossing crevasses, but you just can't see them. Some of them you could see. Um, some of them I would avoid. Um, but, yeah, the majority of them you will never know. So would you look at yourself as an incredibly lucky woman? I'd like to think there was a bit more than luck into it. But if you can't see the crevasses... I know, there were days when, I mean, I remember one morning in particular, about 10 days before the end of my journey, I was having my morning cup of coffee, and I remember watching the surface of the coffee shake and realising it was my hand shaking, because I knew I was near an area of crevasses that they could see from the air, and I knew the visibility was terrible, so I absolutely wouldn't be able to see anything, and I was petrified. Well, speaking of that, how many whiteout conditions did you get? Oh, pretty much every day. I mean, there were certainly Felicity. more days than... <laughs> All my photos show blue sky, and that's because on the days when it was white out, I just didn't have the mental capacity to get the camera out and take pictures. Okay, obvious question number nine here: How did you stay stay? How did you stay sane? Um, I, you know, it was funny. It was uh, I, it suddenly I had no filter on my inner emotions. If I was angry, I got furious. If I got sad, I was tears streaming down my face if I was having a great day I was euphoric um, and so it was really you know quite a an emotional time and that's how I got through it was and just did you have any idea that. it would take 59 days or did you think you'd, fi you'd finish it earlier no, I thought I was going to take a lot longer. I'd estimated 70 or so days. After 59 days, you made it, right? Dodging every known and unknown crevasse, whiteout conditions, mood swings. I could say mood swings, can I? <laughs> yes. A lot of mood accurate. swings. Yep. 
and then they came to get you, but they didn't. No. So I had one last night alone with Antarctica, and I think I was very grateful for that, actually. It gave me a bit of a buffer between just being me and Antarctica, as it had been for the last two months, and then sort of preparing for seeing people again and how that was going to be. At any time during that 59 days, did you want to give up? Every single morning. The very (laughs) first thought that went through my mind was, I can't do this. I'm not the person to do this. So the first struggle every morning was finding a reason to get out that tent and that became my daily challenge was getting out of the tent. Well let's talk about that. Every day when you were finished you'd have to pack you have to unpack the tent, set it up, right? Hope mm-hmm. the solar chargers had been working that day, mm-hmm. right? So you at least eat and have a, a nice hot cup of coffee and then go through the same ritual the next morning. Yeah. Right? And, and we were talking before about how I got through it and I think one of the big things that helped me was that I was meticulous about routine. It was routines for everything. From the moment I opened my eyes I would just go into this routine that was exactly the same every day and so it sort of carried me through it like a like a robot rather than allowing myself too much emotion if I allowed myself to stop and think too much about what I was about to do about what was waiting for me outside of that tent I would never have got through the door so I had to you know take that emotion out by just becoming very robotic about my routines you know when you talk about expedition ships going to the Antarctic there's no place to stop for fuel there's no place to stop for you know extra beer I mean they have to they have to plan for every possible contingency so how many backups did you have you didn't just have one solar charger right uh yes i did only have one solar charger um but you have you know you weigh up all the risks i mean a lot of people think that to do this you have to be some kind of thrill seeker adrenaline junkie but in fact it's the exact opposite you have to be someone who sits down and makes list after list after list who thinks through all the possibilities all the what ifs why wouldn't you have a second solar charger then uh because you know i backed it up with okay i have a spare battery uh you know if the solar panel goes my cell phone battery dies in 40 minutes. I have, you know, other things that could maybe do the same job. So it was all about weighing up, the, weighing up could the weighing up the risk. Could you crank a little electricity too? No. Nothing like that. No, no. And then the chances of the solar panel going wrong in the first place, you know, it's also based on a lot of experience of previous expeditions, okay. what is likely to break and what is not likely to break, and then choosing the right kits. Well, you realize now that right on television right now on CNN, there's an advertisement for DHL talking about the fact that their solar charger did didn't work, and they and they, and they had to fly it, fly it down to Antarctica, and they almost didn't make it. I just thought I'd mention that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you know, you make these decisions at the time to the best of your ability, and you may live to regret them. Luckily, you know, I haven't made too many bad decisions that have cost me too dear. And what were the temperature ranges? I would not know because I did not carry a thermometer because the thermometer is not essential to success or failure. So I didn't need it in my sledge. I had to keep that weight down to absolute minimum. Okay. But I do know. How I do cold know were you? <laughs> when I arrived at the South Pole, they told me it was minus 38. And I know that that felt like a warm day considering what I'd just been through up on the highest parts of my journey. Because a lot of people think Antarctica is flat, but parts of my journey were well over 4,000 meters. So at that point, you know, it's really bitterly cold temperature. So I was well down in the minus 40 somewhere but uh, centigrade which is the same as Fahrenheit actually minus 40 um, but you know I don't know precisely how cold it was and I'm not even going to ask you what the wind chill factor was <laughs> Well, you know, that's not even worth working out. I just know that, you know, it got painful cold. You know, when you get to the point where, you know, if you stop, if you pause, you're in pain within, you know, a minute. Okay, you here know, comes a stupid really question. Cold. I understand constant energy to keep your body temperature going. Mm. But what about at night? 
How many layers were we wearing? Well, again, that's down to having good kit and knowing how to use it. So sleeping bags, for example, a lot of people think, oh, to keep warm in my sleeping bag, I've got to put loads of clothes on. But that stops your sleeping bag working. So, you know, it's about knowing how to best use your kit so it's as efficient as possible and it keeps you warm. I had really good sleep <laughs> all the way across. Yeah. I promise you. But if I had done what you'd done, or I should say if I had attempted to do what you I would have had really good sleep. I would have died. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody attempted it since? Yes, yes, people have uh, attempted to go across Antarctica alone, and uh, you know there's been some tragedy in some of those uh, some of those expeditions. But it, I think it's you know the wonderful thing about Antarctica is that it is a place where people are still pushing those boundaries. And you know, so many people say, "Oh, there's nothing left to discover. There's nothing left to do. We've seen it all. We've done it all." And just look at Antarctica. There are still people down there pushing that envelope. Well, so. speaking of that envelope, you were there for 59 days. What did you discover? What did I discover? Yeah. I discovered that the sun is your friend. I spent a lot of time talking to the sun, and the sun talked back to me. So the sun is your friend. Well, wait a and what did the sun say? <laughs> well, some days the sun uh, was very encouraging, and other days the, the sun gave me some tough love and was like, you know, Flisty, stop whinging, just get on with it today. So, uh, yeah. But in terms of the actual location and topography, what did you discover? Mm, I think, um, you know, I learned that Antarctica is a is a place that is both beautiful and terrifying at the same time and what it really taught me was not only just how tiny we human beings are and the scale of nature on our own planet never mind everything beyond but also how fantastic we are that we are surviving we are doing things on this planet when faced with that force of nature and I think you know we don't celebrate the success of the human race enough we're very good at beating up the human race for all the things that we've done that have not been done right but we also sometimes have to remember that we're pretty ingenious and uh, that's why I believe that all the problems we've created on planet earth we have the power to resolve because we're an extremely clever species and uh, we have the power to do it. Except for that one crazy woman who decided to ski alone across the Antarctic. <laughs> but here I am, here I you did are. it, I, I survived. Know. So. <laughs> what about wildlife? Did you see any? Nothing. Not Zero. a bug, not a fly, not a, yeah. Absolutely nothing. And again, this is one maybe of the they things saw that you make Antarctica you didn't unique. Know it. <laughs> maybe they saw you and, they, and you didn't know it. Well, uh, I mean, you know, because even though I was at the coast uh, at some points, I was still a long way from open water. And so that's where you see the wonderful wildlife in Antarctica yeah. is in the open water. Um, so even on the coast of the Ross Ice Shelf, the open water is maybe 500 kilometers away from me. So you're not going to um, see it. You're not going to see any wildlife. So you were truly alone. Absolutely. If you are continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. My next guest is a, he's a Philadelphia native, and he's been, and the last time I saw him was in the green room of CBS this morning when we were both doing the show that day. Uh, Derek Pitts from the Franklin Institute, what an astronomer you are. <laughs> Thank you, sir. How are you? <laughs> but you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be devil's advocate for a okay. second. When I think astronomy, I don't think Philadelphia. I think, you know, the, the observatories in other places. Sure. And yet, 
You've been doing this for 40 years? Yes, I've been doing this here in Philadelphia for, for 40 years at the Franklin Institute Science Museum, which is a public, hands-on science institution where people come to have fun with science. But we have a strong astronomy component there because our planetarium, the Fells Planetarium, is the second oldest planetarium in the United States. And the oldest is? And the oldest is uh, Adler in no. Chicago. Oh, it's not the Hayden. No, Hayden is like third or fourth. Hayden's nothing. Yeah, okay, forget nothing, that. Nothing. Right, 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 right. So, yes, and we also have an observatory, a rooftop observatory, which you might think is unusual for a center city location, but it's also been at that location since 1934 at a time when the skies were much darker. When we talk about dark sky locations, Philadelphia we doesn't come to mind. Yeah. yeah, that's true. It doesn't. But, you know, there's a really interesting aspect about that, Peter, which is that in the time that I've been working in the observatory, the majority of people have never looked through a telescope before. So that means our mission, we're meeting our mission right smack dab on the money because we're introducing people to the night sky by allowing them to see all those great and wonderful targets like the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, Venus, Mars. Can, can I make an admission here? Sure. I, I'm sort of in a remedial Big Dipper program. Okay. I mean, every once in a while I go, need some oh, help. yeah, I need a lot of help. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. well. Okay. We can help you with okay. that. <laughs> so we're actually providing this wonderful first-time opportunity for people in a safe learning environment so they don't have to feel intimidated or anything like that. And we always know when people have had a good telescope experience because when they look through the eyepiece, we know they've seen it because they always go, <gasps> and that's how we know they've seen it. It's a remarkable can, can you, view. Can you do that again? What was that? <gasps> okay, thank you. I just want to double check that, that reaction. <laughs> <laughs> I've been practicing that for a while. Is that an astronomy kind of a thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. For some, yes. Okay. That's right. But first of all, I'm always surprised, as you just said, about how many people who've never looked through a telescope. Yes, that's, right. that's number one. Yep. Then, of course, it's understanding what you're seeing and then interpreting what you're seeing. Exactly. And that's where we really excel because the folks on our staff know how to engage with visitors. And really, to tell you the truth, at first you think it's all about the astronomy content, but really it's about the visitor experience. It's making sure that people have a good experience seeing something through the telescope. Because, trust me, Peter, if they can't see what you say they're supposed to see... It will have no meaning. They don't care about anything else. So that's first and foremost. We make sure they have a good experience at the telescope. So check the weather forecast to make sure it's not cloudy in Philadelphia, and then show up at the Franklin. Second Tuesday night of every month, night skies at the observatory is a great way for you to get your first look through a really good telescope in an urban environment. Now, in the 40 years at the, at the Franklin, what's been the biggest surprise or left-hand turn you've experienced in terms of astronomy? You know, I would say the biggest surprise, the biggest left-hand turn I've experienced in astronomy is when the Franklin Institute hosted a very, very special exhibition from the Galileo Museum in Florence, Italy. Now we're going back. Now we're going back. Yeah, this wasn't long ago. This is only about, uh, uh, this was uh, 2010. We hosted... But, but before you even say that, yeah, yeah. let's tell our, our listeners... The perspective of Galileo. Sure, yes. So Galileo, in, 16, in 1609, Galileo put together the first telescope that was used for astronomical observing, true astronomical observing. So first it had to work. 
That's the first thing. Yeah. Yes. And then, what the heck were they looking at? You know, here's what happened with this. There was a telescope in use just before Galileo, but the guy who used it, a guy named James uh, Harriet in England, only used it to observe the moon, and he never recorded any of what he did. Galileo, on the other hand, who was a superb marketer, not only built the telescope <laughs> himself, but also as marketed. As seen on TV. As seen on TV. <laughs> just wait, there's more. And what he did was, he not only built the telescope, but his realization of how the solar system was structured came out of his observations and he published that in a vernacular language for everyone that people could understand. to understand. So that's how he did the really great marketing. He didn't keep it to himself. He let everybody know what he was seeing and helped others understand how the solar system is truly structured. The thing that blew me away, because you also have to have a personal experience to be able to get to that point, yes. was when I was in Mexico in Chichen Itza. Yes. And looking at the Aztecs and what they did. Oh, yes. I mean, the way they had the angle Amazing, of the sun. Uh, and they, they had an observatory there. Yeah, they did. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, we can't we can't discount ancient people's capability to understand the motions of objects in the heavens. You have to realize that they had plenty of time on their hands. They didn't have television, radio, movies, internet, any of those things to distract them. Yeah, as opposed night. to all of my friends who are glued to their phone, these people actually looked up. Yes. How about that? Instead yeah. of looking at the app on the phone, you actually go outside and see something. Isn't yeah. that a twist? Well, the great connection between Galileo's work and what we do at the Franklin Institute in astronomy, giving people a chance to observe, is I ask people to imagine what Galileo's experience must have been like when he first saw Jupiter with its moons orbiting the planet. And this was the realization for him that the solar system is heliocentric, sun-centered rather than Earth-centered. Not to <laughs> mention the concept of we are not alone. Not to mention that. Well, that experience of discovery for him, realizing at that point that he's the only person in the world who's ever seen this, well, that's the same experience that our visitors have when they come and they look through the telescope for the first time, too. It's no different from Galileo's first experience. It's a discovery experience for everyone. And, of course, at least once a year, I will see a new story that runs across the wires about another moon being discovered, oh gosh, another yes, planet. Yes, another planet, sure. Yeah. There's thousands of them now. I think the number is 3,741 planets have been confirmed orbiting other stars. Okay, well, here's a travel question for you. Yeah. In our lifetime, forgetting those 3,000, we're still talking about going to Mars. They're still training in Utah. Have you bought your one-way ticket yet? <laughs> My one-way ticket. I'm sure someone would like to send you on a one-way ticket to Mars. <laughs> it's, been, it's been offered before. Thank I'm you. I'm sure. No, but in, in all seriousness, the technology of getting us to the moon, which happened in 1969. Yes. Right? That's coming up on 50 years. Mm -hmm. That's right? right. I just saw Next Buzz year. Aldrin the other night. Yeah. He's still alive. He's 88. I know. He's in great shape. Amazing. But that's 50 years ago. Yeah, right? true. How much has that technology you know, basically evolved and improved that we can actually realistically talk about going to another planet. Well, the evolution that's taken place has opened doors to give us access to low Earth orbit like we have never had it before. And this is a tremendous step forward. So now, rather than having national organizations mounting these enormous, costly campaigns to gain access to low Earth orbit, we have much smaller companies doing this. And, of course, everybody knows about SpaceX, yeah. who's been so okay, successful recently, that, right? I, the thing Didn't that blew, that blew me, your mind? No, I'll tell you what blew my mind. Which, Not that they launched part? it. Yeah. The, the, the two coming came down. down together. They came down together. Isn't that amazing? This, I, I couldn't do that with a pencil. Yeah, I know. It's, it's crazy. Riding along in my automobile. My baby beside me at the wheel. Cruising and playing the radio. With no particular place to go. 
Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. We live in a world where every chef is a celebrity chef. We live in a world where if you're, if you're a chef, you have to have your own TV show and you have to have you have to get on Chopped or Top Chef or whatever. Well, my first guest on this show is a celebrity chef for another reason. Um, and that reason is a restaurant, it's a historic landmark that was here for so many years called the Anaheim White House. And, but what he did, forget the menu for a second, forget the food, think about the mission. His name, Bruno Serrato. Bruno, welcome to the show. Grazie, Peter. Buongiorno, buongiorno, oh everybody. My God. I'm so and, happy to be with you today. And, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I know this is radio, but to see a chef dressed in black and gray is pretty cool. I know. I like. Uh, I, you know, I have a good-looking chef jacket, which I like to wear <laughs> all the time. But I said mission. And what you've done over the... How many years were you doing this? This is my 13 years. April 18 would be 13 years, yeah. Doing what? Serving children in need and serve them past every single night, five nights of the week. It started uh, in 2005 with a first kit, and now we're serving 3,500 children every single night, five nights of the week. Every single night. You know, this is probably one of the best examples of the situation that we have in this country of food insecurity. Yes. Of children going hungry every night. What, what, what awoke you? What, what, what was your wake-up call? My wake-up call it was uh, that day, you know, April 18, 2005. I went to a boys' girls' club with my mom, who she visited me from Italy. And there was a little kid, seven years old, eating potato chips. And the director said, you know, Bruno, that is probably his own dinner. And I said, why? He said, we have a lot of motel in the country, not only Anaheim, all over the world, you know. Yeah. A lot of families live in a motel because they can't afford or they can't move to an apartment to pay first the last month rent. And with mom, I said, mom, I said, you know, I said, that kid is on a bad situation. Potato chips is his dinner. What an Italian mom was telling me, Bruno, why don't you feed him pasta? <laughs> and start. But with the year coming up, look at more of the situation. I knew that would be my mission. And it's very interesting thing that so you start about celebrity chef. Uh, a year ago, a little kid asked me a question. He said, Chef Bruno, are you a celebrity chef? And he was probably nine, ten years old. I said, well, I said, he's a two kind of celebrity chef. Like you mentioned, the one on TV, the one as a TV show. I'm a celebrity chef for different reasons. And I tell him, he looked at me, he's like, well, I like you better. <laughs> and, but I thought it was an innocent question from a young sure. little kid. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to be a But tonight, I was uh, waiting for the event to come up with you. A lady say. Would you like to remember, how would you like to be remembered? I said, the chef who was feeding pasta to the kids. That is the only things I want to be remembered when I be going to heaven. And yet, a fire happened back yeah. in February of 2017. That was almost a year ago, yeah. Yeah, that burned your restaurant to the ground. Yeah, and that also had another blessing because I got a phone call at 5 a.m. And, you know, you think it's big joke when people tell you your restaurant is on fire and uh, I put my pants on, drive my car 100 miles an hour, get to Anaheim and uh, look at all the firemen and the police, I was devastated, I cried 10 minutes non-stop but an hour later watching the fire, the restaurant burning 80% of what I work I give my love for 30 years cry my heart out, I got a phone call 
from a director boys girls club too he said bruno do you need a kitchen i was so concerned how i'm going to feed the kids tomorrow and they say i have a kitchen for you that moment my heart smiled my heart started to beat again because they stopped for the moment i look at the fire and flame and smoke but when he told me i have a kitchen and that was like probably now not only half two max from after the fire i have a kitchen i'm set and my second thing was the crew two hours later of i was course. preoccupied with 60 of my employee but uh, Anaheim Marriott, the general manager called me, Disneyland president called me, Hilton called me, a lot of people come and say, Bruno, what can we do? Say, hire my crew, please. They have a family to, uh, to, to feed. To feed, you know, like, yeah. and they all were behind my back and they hire, all my crew was hired in 30 days time. And now the restaurant's being rebuilt. I'm opening up in three, four weeks from now. And um, can you see my smile? <laughs> now I'm excited because... Uh, and you've maintained feeding of the kids from never, that moment on. We never miss one day. And by the fact, when the fire happened, I was serving 1,800 kids. A year later, we are close to 4,000, 3,500. So ironically, the fire got you publicity you didn't even know about. I had people call me from Australia, Hong Kong, Italy, obviously, because my country, Czech Republic. I was, I was, I was surprised. I mean, I was like, well, maybe I am a celebrity. I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I thought it was funny because uh, they know that people would just talk so much about me. But uh, in my heart, the celebrity are the kids. That's I represent the kids. I represent my mom from heaven because she's the one who told me. But uh, everything I do is. Is the menu passion. still pasta? It's for the kids, yeah. But I, I do. Two times a week, bolognese sauce. Two times a week with chicken because you need to get the protein and the fiber. I mean, I just take care also the health things of the kid, but past every day. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest has become a regular on the show, and we're happy to have him back. Every time we're in London, we grab him. He's the senior travel editor at The Independent, our good friend Simon Calder. How are you? Peter, a pleasure to be here, as always. Now, since you're a local, I have to, you know, and this is a this hotel is a, a, a brave new world for me because I'd never been in this hotel until I checked it out about two months ago. I said, wow, what a cool location. They've done a great job. Have you been in this hotel before? Oh, it, it's a spectacular location. I've been lucky enough to be here. Have you been up on the roof yet? Yeah, I went it's up last just night. gorgeous. What a beautiful view. Yeah. And, and look, even if you're staying in one of the hundreds of other hotels in central London, well worth coming along here for breakfast. You can get what we call a full English breakfast, and that's going to cost you about 30 bucks. Um, really Which by well London standards is a bargain. Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is. But let's talk about, you know, last time we were talking, you were on your way to the World Cup, mm. um, and you survived. Well, everybody survived. Um, yeah. it, it, remarkable. The uh, the Western Russia. government, and, and the uh, UK in particular, issuing very, very stern warnings about what was likely to happen and um, the anti-british sentiment the fact that if you happen not to be white-skinned you are likely to have a very tricky time and so on um i was out there i met with uh, fans from 
right across the world. I was actually at, at a Nigeria game, and they said it's been fantastic. Oh, the Nigerians! Extremely... I was watching the Nigerians. They everybody there was so happy. Everybody was dancing in the streets, but everybody was dancing with them. Yeah, I mean, of like, course, it, it, it was festive. Yeah, and and look, people are saying, that, well, this is just handing a victory to uh, Vladimir Putin. I don't agree. I think it really did open up proper people to people contact, and we realised that on both sides there's, there's propaganda um, designed perhaps to, to keep us apart, and um, it was very, very, it, it was just humanity at its best. Okay, so that begs the next question. I know what it's like to get a Russian visa <laughs> uh, 20 years ago. Yes. I know what it was like to get a Russian visa 20 months ago. Yeah. Is that going to get better now? It, it, it There are signs that it will. Um, I, I, I want to give you an example, and I don't know if you had to do it in yours, but in applying for a Russian visa, I had to list everywhere I had traveled <laughs> my entire life. In my particular case, the application took hours. Yes. I mean, but they want, and you don't leave anything out. Uh, you don't leave anything out. You then need, if it's anything like um, in, in the UK, you, there's three places you can go to to be photographed and fingerprinted. They really want to make it tough. And then you pay uh, something upwards of about $150 to, uh, to, to get your visa. Now, that seems pr- to me pretty designed to stop tourism. It's actually much tougher than it was in the days of the Soviet Union, going back nearly uh, 30 years. Um, it was it, it was far easier then. You just filled out a piece of paper and in you went. Um, but crucially, um, I went in without a visa because I had a match ticket. So too did uh, tens of thousands of other Because they made fans. an exception. If you had a ticket yeah, to the match, well, you got in. Th- th- this was um, the footballing authorities. They said, right, Russia, you can have the World Cup, but you cannot make everybody get a visa. Because uh, so, so you just got to sort this out. They, they had a very good system. You filled in a form. It took about, I think, three minutes to fill in online instead of your, your visa form, which took... Um, Oh, three hours. days yeah. and 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 uh, in you went um, and ne- immediately after the final between France and Croatia Vladimir Putin said right it's been such a success anybody who's got a so-called fan ID this document you got for filling in your form um, can come back for the rest of the year bring your friends bring your family which is terrific except here we are heading towards winter in Russia at least and there's no firm details of how to do it but most definitely <laughs> the idea um, that really caught on in all these uh, odd cities I was in Kaliningrad but the same was in uh, Nizhny Novgorod in Volgograd in Rostov-on-Don all these places where tourists simply didn't go everyone turned up had a great time spent a huge amount of money and it was regarded as a triumph so i think this is going to open up russia so what you're saying simon if i can just interpret this money talks Money talks, but also humanity talks. And it actually reminded me, um, and uh, obviously you don't mention Russia and Ukraine too often in the same sentence, but uh, uh, Ukraine opened up to tourism after this um, extraordinary cultural event we have in Europe called the Eurovision Song Contest. They suspended their visa rules for the contest to allow everybody to go into Kiev and see the, uh, uh, the, <laughs> see the final. And um, then they thought, hang on. Why have we had these absurd rules? Everybody comes here, they spend money, they have a great time. Um, it's a, a, a real positive. Benefit. As I said, money talks. <laughs> it, m- money talks, yes. Okay, yeah. All right. Speaking of money talking, let's talk about the, the residual effects or the continuing residual effects of what Brexit may mean. Oh, well, look, uh, we have our own issues here in the UK about br- what Brexit will mean, but it's becoming clearer what it might mean for US visitors uh, going to, to Europe. Um, at the moment, of course, you, you fly perhaps into London, maybe into Paris. 
it's very easy to travel between the two. Um, there's no actual customs checks, although you get your passport checked, there's no customs checked. That will change, it appears. So therefore, it will become incrementally more difficult to travel between London and, and cities in, in uh, continental Europe. On top of that, you can expect everything to take longer because the we're effectively putting back all the borders and crucially you cannot rely upon there being the same number and low cost of flights because basically at the moment the European Union has has a wonderful open skies arrangement and, and okay the US invented it in what in 1978 I believe exactly. deregulation, deregulation right? yeah we, we followed that um, about uh, 20 years later and it's done wonders but uh, once the UK leaves there's no certainty that that will continue Britain and in particular London has become the aviation capital well, of Europe. Well, that open skies agreement <coughs> was done with the EU. Britain leaving the EU means all this has to be renegotiated. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah, so things things will get trickier. And the current ease with which you can just uh, yeah maybe come into London, use it as a base, and all the cheap flights going to various European countries, that may come to an end. At the moment, you can buy tickets for next summer, uh, but there's no absolute guarantee if you buy a flight from London to Rome that the flight will actually take off. Wow. Well, speaking of not taking off, <laughs> let me shift gears to our friends at Ryanair. Mm. I mean, there's some reality coming home there in terms of their pilots, in terms of their scheduling, in terms of their, their financial model. Yep. Well, this is let's let's just remember this is an airline which is on course to make about £1.6 billion uh, pounds in profit at the end of the financial year. So they're not yet... Um, uh, 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 it, yeah, but but they, they are having a really, really difficult summer. Let's just go back to last December when, for the first time, Ryanair, which has been around for 30 years, accepted that it would have to recognise trades unions. And immediately, the pilots, the cabin crew have signed up to unions and they've said, right, we don't like the way we've been treated. We want to change this and this and this. Ryanair, unlike every other airline which wants to talk down strikes and say, oh, we're going to negotiate, we'll sort everything out. They've actually been talking up in their recent financial results. They said, oh, yeah, we're going to get more strikes. We're never going to give in to these unions. Um, They've had so far um, pilots in, in Ireland going on strike, German pilots threatening to strike, cabin crew in Belgium, in Spain, in Portugal, in Italy going on strike. And towards the end of uh, July, they were cancelling flights by the hundreds. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. My next guest has one of the best jobs going in a building that most of you may be aware of vaguely, but most of you have never been, and I encourage you to go talk about a wealth of information in an exponential way. She's, well... Uh, the best way I can tell you is that she runs all the visitor services at the Library of Congress. Julia Adelphio, how are you? Thank you, Peter. Well, I mean, when I say a repository of information, you are expanding by the hour. We are. We acquire books, documents, you name it, 10 to ten to 20,000 a day coming through a our day. doors. A day. Coming through our doors. I thought I got and a lot we of mail. Process. <laughs> we process those and figure out what should stay in the collection and, what, and be available to researchers coming in and uh, what may uh, have other purposes. Now, if you've ever pictured a library, take that 
picture out of your mind now because mm-hmm. that's not what the Library of Congress is. You are right. Right? You are this right. is not one woman sitting at a desk going, shh. <laughs> this is an amazing opportunity not just to see the books but to see the exhibits. Correct. Well, you have to really start with our historic Thomas Jefferson building, which is just spectacular. It was built in 1897. It is open to anyone walking through the doors to tour, to visit, to explore. Uh, There are docents ready to engage with visitors. There are exhibitions. And by the way, when you say docents ready to engage with visitors, part of any experience has to include great storytelling, and they're the storytellers. Correct. They are, they are amazing storytellers. Uh, they have Many of them have years of experience, decades of experience working with the library and guiding visitors through. And by the way, they're excited to tell the stories. Exactly. Because they're living it. Exactly. Okay, so you've got, Thomas, you've got the Thomas Jefferson Building. Thomas Jefferson Building. But then... We also have the John Adams Building and we have the James Madison Memorial Building. They but- hold reading rooms. There are 18 reading rooms in the Library of Congress in these three buildings. And people come there, scholars come there to do their research, university students, journalists, you name it. Correct. Lawyers. Right. We have a huge law library uh, that focuses on many, many international law books. And if I can encourage my audience to think about this, I do this myself. We live in a world where we're constantly distracted. We're constantly bombarded by electronic images and messages and phone calls and texts. Uh, I have certain people I know who never even look up from their phone. But at least once a week, I will go wherever I happen to be to a public library. I will obviously turn off my phone. And I can actually be in there for three hours or four hours. No one's calling me. I don't know what else is going on. I'm cut off intentionally. But now I'm clued in because now I have an opportunity to do something. We don't get an opportunity to do a lot just because of the culture these days. Correct. Think. To still still your brain yes. and give your time your brain space to think and and what I will do in the library you're going to laugh at me but I do this I will go into the stacks or where the books are and I will literally just go down with my eyes closed and just stop and pull one book out whatever that book out I'm going to look at it yeah and you never get a chance to do that uh, you don't in a normal everyday life. Uh, Now, the Library of Congress is a little bit different in that you come in, you work with a reference librarian, you look at the catalog online, and somebody, a staff member, goes into the stacks and pulls whatever books you're you're looking. But the experience remains the same. The experience remains the same in those reading rooms, no question about it. And the main reading room is a spectacular domed space. In fact, readers say they lose the first half of the day because they're they're just, just looking around by the space. Of course. Now, being the librarian person that you are, mm-hmm. you will get a kick out of this. I grew up in a, in a public library, which is a half a block from my house. And I always went in there, and, and it was the Dewey Decimals, you know, it was the Dewey Decimal cards you, mm-hmm. and the little wooden trays mm-hmm. that you pulled out of the file cabinets. And that's how you look for stuff up, you know? Well, I was at a store one day, an antique store, and what were they selling? The wooden Dewey Decimal file wooden cabinet with all the drawers, right? I bought it. You know what it is now? What? It's my wine cellar. Uh The wine bottles fit in perfectly, but it reminds me every time I pull out a bottle of wine, uh, I'm in a library. And hopefully you open a book as you pull out that bottle of wine and sit. I'm a book nut. Yeah. I don't have a Kindle. 
Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I have to hold it in my hand. I want to smell the pages. There's, right? And there's something about walking into a library uh, stack area. And you, you do. You smell the books. You smell the pages. You smell the, the everything about it. There's something else that happens when you go into a library. And I don't know if you shared this, but I feel very unimportant and very small. <laughs> and, 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 it, and it puts things in proper perspective. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're realizing... I don't care what I think. I don't care what I know. It's not enough. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the exciting things about coming to the Library of Congress. I always say, especially again, I go back to the historic Thomas Jefferson building. I always say that what surrounds you are, are uh, writings. They, you've got uh, writings above the windows. You've got names of authors, all of that. So it's a challenge to learn more. It's a challenge to know more. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes Podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.